Excellent. Good morning, brothers and sisters. We could turn in our Bibles to Revelations chapter 2. Revelations chapter 2. And the allotted portion of Scripture this morning is verses 12 through 29. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to try to cover the passage in its entirety and try not to divert too much. Um, So Revelations chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 12. And God's word reads, And the angel of the Lord, and, and the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So thou hast also them hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I think I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receive it. Unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto the flame of fire, And his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and thy charity, and thy service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat sacrificed things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that committed adultery with her into great tribulation, except they that repent of their deeds. And I I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none of none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, To him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And as the vessels of the potter, they shall be broken to shivers. Even as I receive of my father, I will give him the morning star. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's just take a moment to ask the Lord for guidance as we look into his scripture. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one whom, as John would, would behold him in this vision, he would fall as a dead father. And we're thankful that we have such a high priest that ever lives to intercede for us, that he would be gracious and touch John on the shoulder and say, Fear not. And Father, we, we uh, remember this morning how we could boldly approach the throne of grace because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest who sacrificed himself, offered up one sacrifice for sin. And it was enough, Father. It was the completed sacrifice for sacrifices and burnt offerings thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared. And we're thankful for the Lord Jesus who came to do thy will, to give up his life, to redeem wretched souls as ours. It is in his name that we do pray this morning. Amen. Amen. So it's, it's a pretty lengthy portion with a lot of meat that we have to cover this morning. And we just came from a hiatus, a very beneficial hiatus. Let me not say that we were off in a tangent uh, studying things that were not import, of importance but the last couple of weeks, we, we had the series on the tabernacle. And to those of you who might have missed a session or two or didn't see it, I advise that you go back. There was a lot of uh, important doctrine that was taught there, a lot of things that are beneficial to your spiritual life, and a lot of things that will help us better understand the very passages that we're covering here in the book of Revelations, um, things that were symbols of heavenly things, right? When I was a kid, I would always sit through these um, messages when I, from when I was young, and when we would discuss the tabernacle, I would always see pictures of the tent and all the different uh, whole pieces of holy furniture. Um, but the significance, the way they're described, the uses, what they represent, have eternal value. And they would help our understanding of such scriptures and such book as uh, the, the unveiling of Christ or the book of Revelations. Um, and so as we look into this passage, maybe it's, it's good to understand where, how did we get here to this passage? And I don't want to divert. We covered passage uh, chapter 1, um, how this vision was given to John the Apostle. Um, and he, he um, documents uh, what God would have him to write um and in chapter one we see this great image of of the risen christ how we would read right and john himself would write in in first john chapter one that which we have seen that which we have heard that which we our hands have handled we touched them the word of life right they saw the human version of the lord jesus christ and he was with them, and they dwelt with them, and they had fellowship with him. That very same one, John sees in his glory, and he would essentially fall down as dead. And you think of images of uh, of the glorified Christ, right? Think of Ezekiel when the heavens were open, and he would see this incredible image. You could go into the first couple chapters of Ezekiel to see how in detail he describes the risen one. Isaiah, when he would... In the, when he would document uh, that passage in the year that King Uzziah died, right? I saw this, the Lord high and lifted up. Very similar descriptions of the Holy One, right? 
And here John would would uh, take note and he would describe what he saw as best as he could uh, with the knowledge that he has of the risen Christ. And it's important to remember how he's described. And I want you to pay attention, brother and sister, for every church that he addresses in the letter, it says, it is he, this is Christ speaking to the church, and he gives a characteristic that was mentioned in chapter 1. And each one applies to that church. Um, so it's not just a description, and I would say that John, in a sense, he does a very good description. Why would you say that, David? Well, like let's say, for example, in, in chapter 2, the passage that Andrew covered, right, to the church of Ephesus, it says, These things saith he who holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and walketh in the midst of the golden sticks. That's exactly what it says, what John would say of him, right? And the mystery of the seven stars were were given uh, in, in verses 19 and 20 uh, of chapter 1, right? And just to refresh our minds and our memories, this is the, the Holy One, the Risen One, in His glory, He's before the seven candlesticks, right? And if, if our memory goes back to a couple of weeks, behold, in the tabernacle, the high priest, when he would walk into the holiest, uh, the holiest, um, Chamber and within the tabernacle there was the golden lampstand, and lo and behold there were seven candles. And the high priest, right, had to be a privileged person from a, the the specific family to be given that responsibility to minister within the holy place and attend to the the candles, the the golden lampstand, which were to give light. Right. There's also many studies within the Book of Revelations about numbers. Seven is the number of completion, the, the perfect number. And we see that there's seven, seven candlesticks, seven churches that are described. Um, and again, these churches by no means are perfect, uh, but they're complete, right? There's a, a sense of completeness in the number seven. And here we see God, here we see God, uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, in his risen state, looking at the light that these candles are shining and judging them. Um, as he would speak and write messages to these seven churches. And right, and, and then there was, uh, I'm sure in, in small groups, we discussed it pretty, uh, thoroughly in detail. I, we can't be dogmatic, but I think we came to a consensus that the, the, the angels, right, of these churches were messengers, perhaps elders, some kind of a person of authority, not necessarily an angel like the archangel or Gabriel. Um, that would appear and that, that would be a celestial being. Um, again, we're, we can't be dogmatic about certain things in the book of Revelations because it's not 100% specified, but we have good uh, evidence of what it's referring to, right? So here um, in our passage, right, we're not going to go into Ephesus. We might refer there's some crossing themes uh, between the churches, but certainly... Here in, in chapter 2 and verse 12, we begin the message to Pergamos, Pergamos, right? And I want you to keep in mind who's speaking, right? Remember that John, when he saw, he heard a voice, he turned around and saw the image of the risen Christ and how much power it was and how he would fall as dead as when he would speak, it was as many waters, powerful image. And it's just a constant reminder. Oh, by the way, this is who's speaking, right? Um, in verse 1, the, to the angel of the Lord of the church of Pergamos writes these things. 
Now, who's saying these things? It's still that same one. Saith he who hath a sharp sword with two edges, right? This is one of the characteristics, one of the things that John sees and describes. One that has the sharp sword with two edges, right? And this is very fitting for this specific church, right? Um, just a little bit of um, history on the church of Pergamos, right? If, if um, Again, this is historical accounts that are secular and not necessarily biblical historical accounts. Um, but the church of, of Pergamos, and the name Pergamos, names actually have significance um, in their meaning. Pergamos means thoroughly married, right? Uh, thoroughly married. And we're going to see how this, this uh, ties into this church. Uh, the church of Pergamos, um, the city of Pergamos, I should say, uh, was a, a very idolatrous uh, city. It was full of heathen temples, a lot of idol worship. It was a time um, where it was a, a, there was mandate to have emperor worship, um, and then there was also a city known for its healing. It had a medical cult um, and a lot of bad things that went with it, right? And so you're looking at this very pagan city, this pagan. Uh, civilization as a whole, and how does God's word, how can the gospel penetrate such uh, bad circumstances, this environment, yet the gospel would would penetrate and people would get saved? We see, um, and we see this throughout, throughout church history, right, where the circumstances are dire, uh, where Satan looks like he's got a good uh, hold on a certain civilization of people, the gospel has power, has the power of God to save. Um, and so here we see that God is speaking and describing himself as one that comes with a sharp two-edged sword. A sharp two-edged sword, right? And, then, and again, it was described in chapter 1 of the vision of Christ. Uh, this speaks of judgment, right? He comes to divide um, Later um, in the book of Revelations, it's going to be the, the image of Christ riding a white horse coming to judge. Again, described with this sharp two-edged sword to judge. Um, and it'll be a quick, it's not going to be a battle, it's not going to be a challenge. We, we see through scripture that it's not even close. God is, is all-powerful. Uh, it's not a 50-50 battle between good and evil. Um, essentially, one word is going to finish it, Right? The power of his word. Uh, Pergamos, like I said, even though it had its, its bad parts of society, it had um, a lot of knowledge. It was a, a very developed place. Um, if, if Wikipedia could be uh, um, trusted, it said that it had the second largest library with over 200,000 scrolls. So there was a, a, it was not a, a, by any means a Neanderthal or a, a country uh, type of civilization. It was a very educated civilization, very developed. Uh, but what does Christ have to say to, to uh, the, the assembly, the group of believers that are in Thyatira? It says, I know thy works. That phrase is in every message to the churches that are described. I know thy works. This message is simple. The Lord knows. The Lord knows you. The Lord knows thy works. There's nothing that is hid 
from his face. Um, I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. Right? So there's a lot of references to devil and Satan. Um, you can see it in, in uh, for the church of Smyrna. It's referenced in, in uh, verse 9. Um, and in the, the remaining of, of the churches, it references Satan, right? And, um, and it is important to, to see how that reference comes to be. I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast to my name. And you'll see that the letters begin as such, right? He commends them for the good thing they are doing, and then he would admonish them for what they need improvement on. And let that maybe be a tactic, right? When we approach a brother, right, that has something that is wrong, that they need addressed, and the Spirit has moved you to approach this brother, maybe that's a good tactic. Don't come at them with saying, you're doing this, 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 this wrong. Maybe uh, with the, the help of the Spirit, approach them in a sense of, hey, these things you're doing, and they make sense, right? Um, and then approach to the portion that needs to be addressed. Um, and so the thing that they are banished for um, is that they dwell in Satan's seat. Is that, does that sound something good? Well, you have to read the rest of the statement. It says, And thou holdest fast to my name, and thou hast not denied my faith. Right? Let's, let's consider that even where Satan's seat is. Now, describing... What historically it tells us about Pergamos, about all the idolatry, all the worship of idols, things eaten to, to, um, sacrifice to idols. We're going to see some of the doctrine that's, that's spreading at the time. Um, that seems a place where Satan is working and is dwelling, right? Uh, the Bible says that Satan roams to and fro, right? The kid's song, looking whom he may devour. Satan is a very powerful being, but he's not God, and we must remember that. Um, We know characteristics of God, that he's everywhere, he's all-knowing. Those characteristics don't apply to Satan. And Christian, I would say that by, by verses of Scripture regarding Satan, he's not everywhere at the same time. He has servants, he has demons doing his work in other places, but he himself is not omnipresent as God is. Um... And he chooses to, to, at this time, to be in Pergamos. Um, and nevertheless, right, regardless of what horrible things were going there, God is saying, Christ is saying to the to believers of Pergamos, Thou holdest fast to my name and denied it not. In the days, even the days where an Antipas, my faithful servant or martyr, was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And back then, there was... Uh, like I said, there was a lot of idolatry. The Roman Empire to, um, to in a sense, unite people, stop rebellions. They said, hey, you guys could have your own God in your own district, your own, your own region. You could keep your own religion, but the emperor will be as a deity. And there will be emperor worship, right? Um, it's important to note that um, our brother Andrew mentioned that when he was covering... The, the introduction to the seven churches and when he covered Ephesus and Smyrna, that historically you could trace through church history all these issues as they arise and how they've led 
to the circumstances we are in. Have you ever asked yourself, Christian, how did we get here? Why are things such a mess? Why is there a clergy, a huge group of the Roman Catholic Church? Why is there so many different denominations? Some of them are so far, so skewed from biblical doctrine. How did we get there? And if you study church history through different times, different ages, from uh, the clergy to the Reformation, um, through the time of of Constantine, um, you could see how these problems came to be. But saying that, right, we take scripture as it is, right? It's great that you study church history and you could trace some of those issues. But I tell you that every issue that's covered in these churches, and I, I know I'm kind of going all over the place, it's important that it applies to churches today, right? I don't have to be in the time of, of Constantine to have these issues apply to me. No, no, this stuff happens in assemblies today. And these letters are as relevant now as they were in 90 AD or 360, 16 AD or, or 50 years ago. They're relevant to us now. Um, and here, what Christ is saying is that you held fast to my name. You did not deny, deny me. And then he would mention one of these martyrs. Again, there's no other reference of Antipas through, through the, the scripture, but, uh, historical reference to say that he was a martyr. Um, he was supposedly a dentist. Um, and what, if, if history could be believed that they grabbed a, a bowl in shape of a bowl and, and, and cooked it till it was red hot and essentially cooked them in it, right? Horrible, horrible stories that we read of martyrs that stand up for the name of Christ, that hold to that name, that precious name that we worship and we remember this morning, and they would pay the price. And, and, and uh, God would describe him as my faithful martyr, right? Isn't that the, the goal of every believer to enter into his rest, to hear those beautiful words from our Creator, well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? We might not have these issues as Antipas had now. It could be. And it, it, it's the case in other assemblies throughout the world. We think of, oh, we hear the president doesn't, doesn't demand worship, right? It doesn't demand worship, but there's other uh, countries where the dictator is seen as somebody that's sovereign, somebody that has deity, and the believers there suffer, right? When they're commended to worship a certain place or certain office, they will suffer persecution. Um, And Antipas specifically was slain amongst them, meaning that he was almost made publicly as an example to intimidate the believers. And yet the Lord would say that they held fast to his name and denied not his faith. Oh, that that would be said of us, if that ever came to it, that God would give us the strength um, and strengthen our faith to be able to stand up for the name of Christ. Here, we might have somebody laugh at us, somebody, we might lose friendships at work. People could be like, hey man, we could be friends, but don't bring up that name of Christ around me. Don't bring it, stop mentioning it, right? We can have a relationship. You don't have to do that. That might be the extent that it goes, but to other people, it might cost them their very lives. Now let's go into the admonition, um, admonishment that that uh, the Lord has for the group of believers in verse 14. I have a few things against thee. I have a few things against thee. Um, and these are things that we want to pay attention that we 
don't fall into these very same circumstances. And if, if we're there, that we get these addressed. Um, because thou hast them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, right? And he's not saying entire Pergamos, your entire congregation holds to the doctrine of Balaam. No, you have some among you. You have some among you, right? And the Lord wants that addressed. He's warning them. You have some among you that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam is, was one of my favorite stories when I was a kid. It's very easy to illustrate incredible historical events that actually happened uh, between an evil king named Balak who wanted, who saw the children of Israel coming and their number was great. There was already, by then, there, it was already renowned that God was with them, that nobody could stand up to them. And so then he, instead of uh, coming up with the tactic to build up an army, he comes up on spiritual warfare, goes and hires a man named Balaam, who is a prophet, to curse them. And it goes back and forth. The story is, is great to, to read the account. You can look at it in Numbers chapter 22 um, up to like chapter 31. But Balaam essentially was unable to curse the people of God. He would tell Balak, it would be the opposite. He wouldn't end up blessing them. And Balak would be, would offer him on multiple occasions houses full of silver, great riches. And, and Balaam would say, I, I cannot curse what God doesn't allow me to curse. I cannot curse what God has blessed. Believer, the, the church of God, the true believers in Jesus Christ, we have been blessed. Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with many spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Um, but nonetheless, the world could start creeping in. And here, Balaam, and because he was not able to curse the people of God, he could not curse what God had blessed. He found a stumbling block and advised Balak for a way for the people to sin. Um, and that came in the form of fornication. He had them intermingle with the Moabites. They took Moabites as their wives and quickly they uh, fell into idol worship. And then there had to be judgment, right? If had it not been for Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, th- with throwing a javelin to judge one of those individuals or two of those individuals, it would have, it, it, the, 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 um, Pestilence would have killed thousands even more. If you could read that account in the book of Numbers. Um, and so what he's saying, again, Balaam, this is back in the time of Numbers, right? This is 90 AD when he's writing this. This is not saying that Balaam is actually here, but the doctrine of Balaam, right? And we're going to see that the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans is in a sense one and the same, right? That he, he casts a stumbling block making the children of Israel to sacrifice to idols and to commit fornication. Uh, so has also thou them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate, right? If you see something of the word hate, something that God hates, it'll be a good for you, right, to be in that same side. If God hates something, it probably makes sense for us to hate it. God hates sin. God hates a lying tongue, right? There's certain things that God hates, it's important to remember those. Um, we uh, discussed a little bit about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, right? We don't know exactly who this guy Nicolaitan was, uh, but we know it is a doctrine that God hates. We could also look at the names, the name Nicolaitans. Uh, Nico, if you break down 
the term, it means to conquer, latens, means the people or the laity. And what this is referring to, and, and it's also worthy to point out that the churches of Ephesus was 100% on the right side of this, right? They hated the deed of the Nicolaitans. They made no, no room for it. Um, but unfortunately, here we see Pergamos having some that would hold to that, to that doctrine. Um, some Bible historians would say that this, is, this would speak of the time of uh, Constantine, right? There was great persecution, again, going back to church history, uh, that led up to uh, to this last emperor, which supposedly he had a vision before a battle, um, the, bri- the battle of um, Milvis, the bridge battle, anyways, let me not misquote that. And supposedly he had a dream and said that in, in, in this symbol you shall fight, and he saw the cross, and so he, he had essentially converted the Roman uh, empire into a Christian empire, right? Um, and some would say that that was the biggest atrocity that happened in church history, right? Because now it became a church state. Um, as some people, when, when I was born and very young, young uh, individual, before my parents were saved, right? Everybody in my country is heavily Roman Catholicism, right? And you, you're raised, you're raised a Catholic. I was raised a Catholic, right? Um, thinking that just because I was born here and born in this state, it makes me a Catholic, um, and it would it would skew the gospel because now it's not a matter of uh, faith in Christ alone to obtain salvation, but now it's hey the emperor says you must be baptized, you must be a Christian, or you're going to get the sword, right? And people are like, hey, that means I'm getting saved for sure. I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't want the sword, and you get all these. Um, false doctrines such as infant baptism. Listen, let me tell you, I was baptized as an infant. I have pictures of it. That didn't do anything for me except just wet my hair. It did nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and you get these skewed doctrines and that, that how much damage that has done to the growth of the church, deceiving people into thinking they are saved just because they're born in a state. If you're born in a car, it doesn't mean that you are a car. It just means that you didn't make it to the hospital. Just because you're born in a, in a Christian state doesn't mean that you are a Christian, right? Um, and so thou hatest, uh, or thou hast some that hold to the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, so, so here, John, it, it might be, it might be um, prudent to, to look at uh, the third letter of John. Um, he mentions this, and you could see, here's John writing as an old man, probably around 90 AD. You could see this already starting to creep in in the early, early church. Think about this. This is just 90 years, uh, or, or 90 AD, um, which is in the time that John was still alive. There's an individual described in verse 9. I wrote, to, un, I wrote unto the church, but diatrophies, who love to have the preeminence among you, receive it us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, not content wherewithin, uh, therewith, neither, neither doeth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. And here we see 
almost the beginning of a clergy. Here's a, an individual that would elevate himself, right? We're given a, a system in a sense in, in, in the New Testament church where we're to have elders, they're to be overseers, and the congregation as a whole. Uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1, we read that he has made us kings and priests, right? Every believer has a direct path. The veil is rent. The tabernacle of God is now with men. And we could approach boldly the throne. We could look at the scripture and have a fellowship with God. And here's one that's elevating himself. Uh, not allowing the, the doctrine of not just any person writing. Of one of the apostles. Not allowing the doctrine of one of the apostles to be shared and preached at the church. He won't allow any of the people that, that they would send to, to preach. And eventually you could see that this is just becomes an evolving thing. You have like an elder that becomes a bishop and he oversees the church, doesn't let anybody come in and come out. And then it becomes a district and then it becomes essentially a system that's corrupt so far from what the truth of God is, from what God had intended. Um, it's the system that God hates, right? Uh, and so here is... The term Nicolaitans, right, to conquer the people through this system. Uh, and here is the, the warning that God gives um, and what he re- requires of them. Repent or else I will come unto you quickly and fight against them. And here's an encouraging thought, believers, that here God is coming to, to almost in a sense to protect them. Here I come quickly to fight against you. No, to, there's you and then there's them. And he's going to come, and he's going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's that sword that divides, right? Christ would say, I come with a sword. And people take that verse and corrupt it, saying, see, Christ would come to preach violence. No, he came with the sword of his word to divide mother and father, right? He's going to divide people that are believing in him and people that are not believing in him. For the gospel, right, it, it's in an individual basis. You could choose to love Christ. You could choose to accept His Son as your Lord and Savior. And here we see He's coming with that sword. Look at what these beautiful promises He has. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give him to eat of the hidden manna. The hidden manna. Any of the young folk that are here could anybody tell me what the hidden manna is from uh, our brother Larry's lessons? What do you think that is, the hidden manna? 13 and under. All right, to the adults. The hidden manna, what do you think that might be referring to? Now, I'm, and I'm saying brother Larry specifically because of the tabernacle. Yes, in the, in the holies, in the holiest of holies, there was the mercy seat, and underneath the mercy seat was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and in there was three items, that the, the tablets, right, Aaron's rod that budded, and a bowl of manna. I will give to him the hidden manna. What do you think the hidden manna is? Well, I'll tell you this, since we're running out of time. It's Christ himself. It's Christ himself. In John chapter 6 and verse 49 and 50, he says, I am the bread of life. I am that living manna. He that eats of me will have eternal life. Right? I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, Christ will give of himself. And here we see that not only is Christ the rewarder, but he's also the reward. He's your possession to have. 
Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? I will give to him the hidden manna. The manna that was not accessible to any of the Old Testament saints. It was not accessible to any old Levite. It was not, it was in the ark. It was hidden. But now it's accessible to us. I will give to him a white stone and in the stone a new name written. A white stone was, um, Historically, it was a, a symbol of acceptance, of belonging. When somebody would come to somebody's house or feast, they would give them a stone, a white stone to signify that, hey, my doors are open, you're welcome. And so here we see uh, God promising to this person that overcometh, right, that overcometh the, the, the doctrine of Balaam and of, of, um, of the Nicolaitans, that he's going to give to him to eat the hidden manna, which gives us eternal life, going to give us a white stone. He's going to welcome us with open arms. Imagine that, God himself to welcome us um, um, and accepting us through his son, the Lord Jesus. Right? And see, we're quickly on running out of time, but let's give it a shot to go through Thyatira. Thyatira. Um, these things saith the Son of God, right? Another description that was in chapter 1. I want to point to you that the description changes by a couple words. These things saith the Son of God, um, who saith, who hath uh, eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass, right? If we look at the, the verse uh, where that's described, um, and this is found in chapter 1, and in verse, okay, so it, it says in, in verse 14, his head and his hairs were white as wool, uh, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, right? The difference is, it's described in verse 13 as the son of man, son of man, right? Over here, Christ changes it to the son of God, son of God. They're, they're one and the same, same person, right? Um, but here God would, Christ would not speak to his humanity. He would direct his lineage directly to God the Father. And I will point to you, brother and sister, that he's speaking here, right? Because now when he's going to address this church is regarding the issue of holiness. Holiness. And he wants to show that his deity is what's in question here, that he's the son of God. And he comes with eyes of flame, right? All that sees everything. There's nothing hid from his presence. Nothing hid from his presence. Um, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, right? And he's gonna, again, start out with the positive, the things that he, that he, um, respects about them. Um, and he's looking at them with these eyes of fire, eyes of fire, because as we, we, recognize that he knows all our works he knows everything and sometimes it's it's a good reminder uh to remember that it's a terrifying thought for those who are without for those that are not with with the that are not written in the lamb's book of life as we're going to see in chapter 20 right for those that are without christ it's a terrifying thought everybody does their sinful deeds in private they don't do them out in public. Some of them, some sins are done out in public. The majority of them are done in private. But the thought that God 
one day will judge them for their works. It would say in, in chapter 20 that the books are open and every man is judged according to their deeds. To the believers, a little different. Second Corinthians chapter 5, it would speak about the, the judgment seat of Christ. Um, but God has a record of it all. Um, and it speaks of their work, which is charity, service, faith, patience, works. Great stuff, right? Charitable works, good works is something that's positive, something that we should not, um, we should not condemn, right? Sometimes we, we, we get into the trap of saying the gospel is by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, but if works doesn't proceed afterwards, if there's no fruits of the labor, right? If there's no, um, how would, how would we say in, in, for example, in, in Titus chapter three, look what it says. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those that have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, right? There's no such thing as there was a, a, a speaker when I was a kid. I always found a, a curious uh, illustration that he knew a man that would say, hey, I'm going to shave with my uh, my Baptist razor. Then he would say, once shaved, always shaved. In a sense, mocking the gospel, right? This this concept of you say a prayer, um, you get this feeling once, and then that's it. You go on living your life, not caring about anything. You go doing what you will, and, and you've never been converted. You've never been changed. You've never been born again. Scripture would say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new Creation. He is a new creation. If that change doesn't happen, there will be evidence if it did happen, right? And here t- Titus is, is warning that, hey, there should be good works to the believer. Um, and James would also say, hey, I will show you, you want to show me faith without works? I'll show you my faith by my works. And he would go on to say in chapter 2, verse 14, thus faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. Not saying that faith in Christ alone is not enough. That's not what James is saying. He's saying there's no such thing as a Baptist razor, essentially. There's no such thing as saying a magical phrase and being unchanged, thinking that that's what's going to save you. And here, Christ is, is commending them for their good charitable works, right? Perhaps they were a very loving assembly. They love to do things, um, but maybe to a fault, we're, we're going to see, right? And, and you see... Um, this trap that, that a lot of big mega churches fall in, it's about charity, about love, and they forget about Christ. They forget about the gospel. They forget about salvation. They forget about sin, condemning sin, as we see, um, happens to this church of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was, um, again, if, if history could be believed, it was a city of industry, work, and trades. A uh, very in- industrious city for business, um, but with it, with a lot of trade comes a lot of pagan idolatry. Um, and here is what uh, God would con- condemn uh, the saints at Thyatira. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel. Maybe whenever you hear that, you, that phrase, that woman, it's not a not a positive thing. So, brothers, never uh, refer to your wife as that woman. You know, burnt my my dinner. Um, 
But it, it okay, all kidding aside, Jezebel, and it, it's a peculiar name, right? This is this is John writing. Uh, again, I, I don't know if it's referencing to the Jezebel in the Old Testament, maybe somebody like a Jezebel, or if there was an actual woman in the assembly named Jezebel. Maybe this is also a good good uh, object lesson here to not name your daughters Jezebel. Who knows? But anyways, let me not get off track here. But she herself called herself a prophetess, called herself a prophetess. Um, the assembly of God is very dependent on the sisters. I'll say that much. Very dependent on the sisters. Uh, when I was a young man, somebody said, a woman can make a man, a woman can break a man. Um, women have a lot of influence, a lot of influence. And when we see the failure of men, in the Old Testament we see specific times of the judges, which were dark times, where there was no man to raise. God would raise himself up a Deborah, and she was a mighty judge, and she would judge the people. When Eli's son, the high priest, he himself, it didn't say that he was a sinful man or that he did blasphemous things. He did his duties, but it says that he did not condemn his sons. It says that his sons were evil that would make, lead the people to sin. His sons were worthless men. And God would raise up a Hannah to give a son that would be worthy to lead the people of Israel, right? And so because of the weakness and the frailty of useless men, God would use the sisters. And God bless these sisters of how great they were. And, and you think of, consider of the state of Israel, of the Old Testament, Jezebel, right? There was a pagan, uh, a useless king, let's say, in Ahab. It says that he married Jezebel. And immediately after he married Jezebel, doubtless she was a beautiful woman. She probably was very appealing to the eye. He started worshiping Baal almost immediately, right? Completely forgetting the God that delivered him out of Egypt, that conquered the land, that helped him possess the land. Immediately worships, starts worshiping Baal, has the prophets of God killed, um, has, has the, um, co- sin, covetousness was a, a big sin for him. Remember Naboth's vineyard? And Naboth is not that he wasn't offered a, a good price. Naboth would say, this is the heritage of the Lord. And they were instructed that the, the heritage of the Lord, that the land that was given to him, they were not supposed to sell. And yet this woman go, would go and slay this man unlawfully. He would war with the prophet of God, Elijah, and Mount Carmel. And there would be that great, great um, miracle that was done there. She would manipulate um, just the king and, and lead the nation to the, the, the worst state the nation of Israel was, the northern kingdom at that time. Um, all because it was a refusal for for the king to to step in and, and face that sin, right? And perhaps the the people, um, the brothers and sisters in this assembly, perhaps they were all about love, and sin would start creeping in, and this false prophetess would start giving spewing wrong doctrine that was just morally wrong. It went against the doctrine that God would give the people. And they would not stand up to it. Perhaps it was the unpopular thing to do. Perhaps it was an uncomfortable um, thing to do. And we pray for our, for our elders and pray for the saints here. If somebody says something that's doctrinally not correct, whether it be doctrine that started at a home and is starting to creep in, that contradicts the teachings of the New Testament, we need to, we need to weed that out. It needs to be addressed. It can't let, it can't simmer and spread as the concept of a little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump, right? It's just a little bit of leaven. That's all it takes. 
You could say, uh, Randy Amos, when I was a kid, he always used to give this example, right? As, as, as far as what the, the doctrine that God gives us, you could take a glass of water, which is refreshing. It gives you life. If you put 1% of arsenic in there, it becomes deadly and it will kill you. Right? You can't say, oh, but look at all these charitable deeds. Look at all these wonderful works that we're doing. Just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And this is a, a, a severe warning um, to the saints at Thyatira. Um, we're going to skip a few verses to the point where God would make them an object lesson, right? It, it, it would say uh, of the way that he's going to judge her. And, and mind you, mind you, this is our God that is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance. Look what it says of this, this wicked woman. I gave her space to repent of fornication. But did she? No. Sadly, she repented not. Right? He gave her space. Repent to this wicked woman. But she would not repent and then judgment will fall upon her. It would be made something that was uh, that all the churches would witness, something that needs to be addressed. And oh, that we would have believers strong in the faith that would stand up for the truth and correct incorrect doctrine, right? That's seeping in, perforating into the assembly of God. Let's go, since we're out of time, let's uh, cover the last few verses. <clears throat> Um, but that which I already hold you, okay. Here's the, 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 the recommendation. But he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule with them with a rod of iron, as vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I receiveth of my father. And here we're, it's speaking of overcoming and, and conquering, right? It says of the believer, we shall ever reign with thee. There's going to be a time, and it's going to be described here in the book of Revelations, where we're going to be reigning. Um, there's a, a brother that I listened to some of his messages, and he's like, it's such a false misconception that we're going to get to heaven and we're going to sing hymns all day. That we're just going to sit there. No, there's going to be, it's going to be a kingdom. There's going to be rule. We're going to reign. There's going to be tasks to do. Um, and we shall ever reign with thee. I will give to him the morning star. What do you think the morning star is? Hint, hint. It's the same thing as the head of manna. It's Jesus. Jesus. He's the rewarder and he's the reward. I am the bright and morning star, Christ would say of himself. I will give him the bright morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's close the meeting in a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the image of the risen Messiah that we have, how he is our high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. We have a high priest who shall not fail us. Whoever lives to make intercession for us, Father, as he is currently sitting at the right hand of God, for the work is done, Father. We're so thankful for that one sacrifice. And Lord, how we pray that each and every one of us would have a testimony to the world of this Jesus. We pray for the congregation as we depart this week. With your blessing, Father, in your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.